0: Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 5. If you were not with us Wednesday night, we went through that glorious scene in heaven, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ezekiel. The calling and the commissioning of Ezekiel, uh, that phenomenal scene that is uh, unlike any other, at least before it, that we have in in the record of Scripture, very much like the scene after it, when... um, John the Apostle received his vision. But now in Ezekiel 5, we come upon an issue that I have wondered about for a long, long time. Beginning in verse 1, let's just read through a few verses here. As for you, son of man, take a sharp sword. Take and use it as a barber's razor on your head and beard. And then take scales for weighing and divide the hair. One third you shall burn in the fire at the center of the city when the days of the siege are completed. And then you shall take one third and strike it with the sword all around the city. And one third you shall scatter to the wind. Then I will unsheathe the sword behind them. Take also a few in number from them and bind them in the edges of your robes Take again some of them, and throw them into the fire, and burn them in the fire. From it a fire will spread to all the house of Israel. Verse 5, Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. But she has rebelled against my ordinances more wickedly than the nations, and against my statutes more than the lands which surround her, for they have rejected my ordinances and have not walked in My statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have more turmoil than the nations which surround you, and have not walked in My statutes, nor observed My ordinances, nor observed the ordinances of the nations which surround you, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments among you in the sight of the nations." Lord, Your Word is sure. We know this. It is trustworthy. It is absolute. It is true. And yet there are things in Your Word, Father, that from our human understanding are difficult for us. And this, for me, is one of those. And I pray, Father, for revelation not just to the understanding of Your Word, but to the change that understanding Your Word makes in my heart. To the alteration that happens to our spirits as Your Holy Spirit downloads what You have for us, Your desires for us, and Your passion for this world and for especially, Lord, Jerusalem at the center of the nations. Father, before we say another word, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem because we know Your heart is there. And we pray for Your will to be accomplished as we know it will. And we ask this morning... Again, for insight and revelation. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Do you love the Bible? Yes. Yes. Amen. Now, if I asked you about a passion that you have for your wife, gentlemen, or, uh, or for your husband's ladies, do you love your husband? If, if you gave that same response... really you love your wife oh yeah sure I told her so 30 years ago (laughs) and I told her if it changed I'd let her know (laughs) do you love the Bible how about Bible prophecy now see in this place I think a lot of people do but I've actually heard some people say I like the Bible I just don't get into all that prophecy stuff thing is you can't get into the Bible without getting into prophecy If you tell me you love the Bible, you've got to tell me you love prophecy, because the reality is, by conservative estimates, two-fifths of all Scripture is prophecy. Besides, as the Bible clearly establishes, even more so, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I love to talk about Bible prophecy, because as Russ said a few minutes ago, I love Jesus. And if you love Jesus, you love prophecy because every single prophecy in Scripture is there to point us to Him. Now we've talked about that over the last few weeks, getting into Ezekiel here, noting again that this is a humongous book of prophecy, followed by Daniel, another amazing book of prophecy. And I said last week, and I said Wednesday night, and I may say this on a weekly basis, don't forget that the focal point of all prophecy is Jesus. That He is why these words are here. And these words are to direct us to Him. Now, understanding that, while the primary focus of Bible prophecy is Jesus Christ, the primary place has to be Jerusalem. The epicenter, as it's been called, of the greatest prophetic fulfillments on the earth is God's capital city, the city He chose for Himself, Jerusalem in jerusalem christ was dedicated on the 8th day after his birth 30 years later in jerusalem jesus triumphantly rode that donkey's colt to the praise and adoration of the people a week later in jerusalem from the mount of all Ol- well from just outside of jerusalem north of there he was crucified and buried and raised 3 days later from jerusalem's mount of olives he ascended And the Bible tells us to Jerusalem's Mount of Olives, He will descend again. He will return. Jerusalem is the focal point. It is the location. It is the place. No city on earth holds the uniqueness of God's city, Jerusalem. And long before Jesus walked the earth, long before He put on flesh and dwelt among us, Jerusalem was established as God's city of primary importance. Jerusalem is named 814 times in the Bible. Its companion name, Zion, is seen another 163 times for a total of 977 times. And that's times that it's specifically named. That's not even considering all the times that the city is referred to or talked about or indicated in Scripture. It's the subject of countless events. The home, obviously, of the Jewish temple, first and second. The center of Israelite worship for a thousand years. And once the Jews were driven out, once they were finally dispersed into all the nations and all the lands, it was their longing for almost 2,000 years. And many of you know this. Every Passover, they would repeat this hopeful phrase, Lashana Hava'ah B'Yerushalayim. Next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. And so, and I've read this verse before, but never in this context. Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. Perhaps you've seen the ancient map. There's an old map, it actually looks like a flower, and it has Jerusalem in a center in the middle, and then a petal out this way, showing nations in one direction, and a petal this way, showing nations in another, and a petal down below showing nations in that direction, all fanning out from Jerusalem at the center. It's not geographically sound, so to speak, but it portrays the heart of Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5, Jerusalem in the center. Now, if you heard last week, we're using a word we talked about last week, Tavek. And Tavek means in the center. Remember, Ezekiel was among, Tavek, in the center of the exiles when God called him. And so now we see Jerusalem in the center of nations, among or in the middle of nations. Among is an important word to Ezekiel. He uses it as we talked about last week. Many, many times. More than any of the other prophets combined, Israel uses that word to indicate importance. Ezekiel likes to get down to the heart of the matter. He gets into the nitty-gritty. He wants to go to the center of the message, the focal point. And so the significance of Jerusalem, not only in God's plan, but to the Lord Himself, it cannot be overstated. This is Jerusalem, God says, at the center of the nations back in 2nd chronicles chapter 6 verse 6 he says i have chosen jerusalem that my name might be there psalm 48 verse 2 beautiful in elevation the joy of the whole earth is mount zion in the far north the city of the great king psalm 132:13 tells us the lord has chosen zion he has desired it for his habitation this is my resting place forever here i will dwell for i have desired it prophet jeremiah just one study back in chapter 3 verse 17 said at that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all the nations will be gathered to it. To Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. Nor will they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil hearts. Zechariah chapter 8 verse 2. The Lord says I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes with great wrath I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Now think about that. If he said that about our property on Troxel Road, how would you feel about it? What would be your desire toward it? This is not a commercial. It's just trying to get us to realize the significance of the actual place Jerusalem. We need to pull out of our heads all the fancifulness of it and see it as a real location on planet Earth. To stand there in Jerusalem, to walk those streets, to sit up on the Mount of Olives and look across to the city, to actually walk in the ancient ruins of the city of David. It's a stunning experience to be in Jerusalem, a real place, an actual location on earth, and God in those verses I gave you calls it the city of truth, his habitation, the city of the great king, and the throne of the Lord, because the Bible says Jesus is going to return and he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem as his capital over all the earth for a thousand years, and that ruling and that reigning, my friends, is not far off. I believe we are very near, as Paul said, nearer now than when we first believed, which may seem obvious to you, but it's a wonderful truth. But as of today, Jerusalem remains at the center of world controversy. Jerusalem is the big issue. The question is, who holds the right to the city? Who who has the historical right to this location from a political perspective, from a A geographical perspective, from a personal perspective, who should live there? Well, if you go back a bit to 2 Samuel chapter 5 and the companion passage, 1 Chronicles chapter 11, they tell the story of the first time a Jew stormed the city. The first coming of the Jewish people into the city when David captured it from the Jebusites. You may recall the story. David said, any man among us who can figure out a way into that stronghold to conquer Jebus, as it was called, will become my captain. Joab figured it out. There was a 75-foot water shaft that ran from Jerusalem almost straight down, plunging to to the Kidron Valley, to the Gihon Spring, later called the Pool of Siloam. Joab and some men figured out a way to shinny up that shaft and make their way into the city and open the gates and in flooded David and his army. First Chronicles eleven four says David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is Jebus, and the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, were there. The inhabitants of Jebus said to David, "You shall not enter here." Or in Monty Python language, "None shall pass." <laughs> Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. David captured it from the Jebusites, took it. And from that point on, it became the capital of David's kingdom and the capital of Israel, Jerusalem. But it was called Jebus before that. Jebus means two things, really, threshing place, threshing place, or interestingly, trampled. Jebus. Meaning trampled. Jesus said in Luke 21:24, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so we might say the Jebusites were the original tramplers. They were the original threshers trampling Jerusalem. Some draw back to this historically and they say, okay, the Jebusites were there first. So really, I would say if, if we're going to go back in history, we need to lay claim with the Jebusites, Right? That's what some people in political circles will say. Since David captured the city from the Jebusites, the original owner should have Jerusalem returned to them. And so some equate the Jebusites, who were Canaanites, they were Canaanites, some equate them with the Arabs, or more specifically with the Palestinians. And the Palestinians will say, the Jebusites, there are people, there are history. Of the Canaanites, that's where we came from. Therefore, we had it before the Jewish people. It sounds kind of kindergarten, but that's part of the argument. We were there first. I was first in line, you know. Palestinian Authority would say, since David took Jebus from the Jebusites, then originally it was ours and should be returned to us. couple of things to think about. One that's interesting is that Jerusalem, under any name even under the name of Jebus, is not mentioned a single time in the Quran. Not once. I mean, not a a, a mention. Compared to 977 times in the Bible. Along with the other countless references to Jerusalem in the Bible, it's not even referred to except for one possibility in the Quran. In the Muslim view, the Quran talks about Muhammad's midnight ride to a far-off place. And from that far-off place, he tied up his horse... He ascended to heaven, he came back down, hopped on his horse and came back from this far off place. Muslim will tell you, that's Jerusalem. There's nothing to support that. There's nothing that that strengthens that argument. That is as close as you can get, at least in the Quran, to saying Jerusalem should belong to Muslims or to the ancient Jebusites. Who weren't Muslim, by the way, because Islam didn't even start until 600 years after Christ. Things are beginning to unravel with this view. There's another problem. Today's Palestinians are not, listen, are not Jebusites. They cannot trace their lineage back to the Jebusites. Nor were they the ancient Philistines, which is another claim. Now, depending on the day, both have been claimed by the Palestinians, the Palestinian Arabs that they are either the ancient Jebusites who had Jerusalem first, or they're the ancient Palestinians, Philistines, who had conquered the land first. And they used both to say, we were here first from time immemorial. Here's the deal. On the one hand, they claimed to be descendants of the Philistines, but the Philistines were not Arabic. They were a European seafaring people from the island of Crete who sailed across and then planted themselves on the western coast of Israel. Not Arabic. So that undermines that issue. But on the other hand, if they claim, well, okay, if that's not it, well, we're we're the ancient Jebusites. The Jebusites, listen, were not Arabic. They were not of that line. Go back to what is called the table of nations. And you can read this. It's in Genesis chapter 10. Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 6, the sons of Ham, or you could say the Hamitic people, were Cush, Mitzrayim, and Put, and Canaan. Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Gergeshite, the Megabite, and on and on you go. <laughs> the sons of Ham were Canaan and then the Jebusites. The Hamitic people who at that time went south, Africa. Hamitic people are African and and go that direction. And then there's Shem and there's Japheth. Well, Japheth and those people, we believe, went west, European people. The Shemitic people, the sons of Shem, Arabs and Jews. The Arabs are Semitic, just like the Jews are Semitic, and therefore not Jebusites, can't be. Not of that line. The table of nations alone makes it clear the Jebusites were Hamitic. But you got to go back further than that. you got to go back further than Jebus and the Jebusites and the conquering of Jerusalem and ask the, the important question, who originally founded Jerusalem in the first place? And the very first mention we have of Jerusalem in Scripture a thousand years before David or even before the Jebusites when the city was called Salem, Shalom, Peace, and we meet a strange and mysterious character. You Bible students know his name, right? Melchizedek. Or Melchizedek. Melchizedek to his friends. <laughs> Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20 tell the story. Abraham now is returning. So we're a thousand years before the conquering of Jerusalem, conquering of Jebus by David, go back. And now Abraham's returning from a battle. Uh, a, a military genius, he, he defeated four kings and their armies, rescued his nephew Lot, got him out and he's returning now with all the spoils of war and as he returns he's passing by this place, Salem Jerusalem and he met Melchizedek Melchizedek means king of righteousness Melchizedek was also the king of of Salem therefore he was king of righteousness and as the Hebrew writer Hebrews chapter 7 tells us king of peace king of righteousness king of peace and this this king was also called priest of most high God king of righteousness king of peace priest of most high God who was king and priest and when he met Abraham he brought out bread and wine to break with him Abraham, who at that point was still Abram, was so impressed by this whole issue that he worships Melchizedek. He gives him 10%, a tithe, of all the spoils of war. Just get for for bread and wine? That was one expensive bottle of wine. He gives him the spoils of war, 10%. Hebrews chapter 7 talks much more about this. Who is this Melchizedek? He is at least a marvelous image or portrait of of Jesus Christ. Some think that this was an early appearance of Jesus. A Christophany. Jesus showing up in the Hebrew Scriptures prior to His walking the earth. But that's the earliest account of Jerusalem on record. The story of Abram and Melchizedek and Salem. That's the earliest account we have. So if you go all the way back to the earliest place... I ask the question, is it possible that the founding of Salem was by Jesus? Or perhaps was at the hand of God through Melchizedek? Regardless of those early years and in inhabitants, the bottom line is there is no question who holds the right to the city of Jerusalem, and it is he is the Lord. The Lord God has all rights to the city. God chose the city for Himself. He calls it His own, His habitation, the city of truth, His throne. It is My city. I have put My name there, says the Lord. And then, further on in Zechariah 12, God says, Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day. I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. All the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. And we have watched through this generation and the previous few generations, we have watched Jerusalem once again be at the center of nations, at the center of controversy, and at the center of the cup of reeling in the Middle East. That alone, whether people are into prophecy or not, should shake us and awaken us that something's going on that the prophet Zechariah talked about a few hundred years before Christ. A cup that causes reeling. Every American president since Carter who has tried to lift or divide Jerusalem in peace plans, every single one has been injured and not long after they've tried to lift it. Every single president since Carter has tried something like this, and every single one has ended up with scandal or problems or issues that undermine their entire administration, including our current one. This is not a political statement. Well, maybe it is, but it's not... What's the... It's not an anti democratic president statement. It is a reality statement. And you all know this, that our current administration, like it or not, is embroiled in controversy right now. And many were saying, in the first four years of Obama's presidency, he's untouchable. Seems to be being touched right now. And one thing after another coming up in all of this issue, and I asked the question, could it be? Is it possible? Am I too simplistic in thinking that because Obama has determined to do something about Jerusalem that perhaps all this other stuff is coming apart around him? You see, Obama's intention is pre-1967 borders. We need to go back. Go back to 1948. Go back to the founding of the nation. Go back to the sliver of land they were originally offered in the UN partition plan that was rejected by every Arab nation including the Palestinian people at the time and accepted by Israel let's go back to that Secretary of State John Kerry heads back to the region this next week for the fifth time in four months pressure is mounting again on Israel and on Jerusalem this attempt to reboot the peace process is underway just this morning uh, Danny Dannon and M.K. in Israel in the Knesset there made the statement Jerusalem is not going to be divided and we will not go back to 1967 borders. Clarifying this before John Kerry arrives on the scene my friends, Jerusalem is the key issue because for the Palestinians to receive what they want in this process it would be dividing Jerusalem and all of East Jerusalem will become the capital of the Palestinian state. East Jerusalem that includes the Temple Mount, all of the Old City, the Mount of Olives, the holy sites of the Jews and Christians throughout the ages, would all become that capital. And then, of course, the other part of Jerusalem, we just draw a line down the middle, and the rest of Jerusalem, well, the Jews can have to do it as they please. In May, Israel celebrated 65 years of independence. Palestinians commemorated it as what they call the Nakba, which is the calamity. They claim that more than 700,000 Palestinian Arabs were driven out in a brutal ethnic cleansing by the Jews in 1948. Now the Jews know something about ethnic cleansing. Because just prior to 1948, 6 million of them were cleansed by the Nazis. And in the founding of this state... There are those who will say 700,000. I read this statistic this last week. A million. A million Arabs were displaced by those brutal Jews. The number, just to be, i got to clarify all this, okay? Truth number one, they were not driven out. The Arabs that were living in the land at that time were strongly encouraged by their Arab brothers to get out of the way Because their brothers said, we're not going to make any distinction. Jordan, Syria, Egypt, flooding in, Lebanon, Iraq, attacking Israel, the the fledgling state. We're not going to make any distinction. We're just coming in. So you all, our our Arab brothers, move out, come on in here, hang out just for a little while. It'll be over fast. We'll drive the Jews into the sea. And then you can come in and have all their lands and fields and property and, and everything will be copacetic. So just move out of the way. They all did. Yeah, that's truth number one. Truth number two, it was not 700,000. It was not a million. The records are very clear on this, 400,000. Now it's a lot of people, a lot of Arabs. The 400,000 Arabs fled what was then Palestine or had just become Israel. They fled Israel. 400,000. How many Jewish refugees came out of that war? Do you know? Driven out of Syria, driven out of Jordan, driven out of Egypt, driven out of Iraq, driven out of Lebanon, all the surrounding countries, there were a lot of Jews living there, and the records tell us 400,000 Jews were driven out of their homes with nothing in those surrounding countries. 400,000 Jews were driven out, 400,000 Arabs were driven out. And today, there is not a Jewish refugee crisis in Israel. There are just Jews in Israel. Citizens of the state. Because at the time, all Jewish refugees were received by the fledgling Jewish state. Even though it was overwhelming to have an instantaneous 400,000 people move in. But the Jewish state said, come, we will figure it out. We will make homes, we'll make room, and we'll work this out. The 400,000 Arabs now in these refugee camps were not received were not welcomed with open arms, did not integrate into those societies, and they remained in those refugee camps, and thus began the beginning of the Palestinian refugee crisis. Now, I know I'm giving you some history here. If you want to read more about that, probably the best, most consummate book on it is From Time Immemorial by Joan Peters. Joan Peters, a civil rights activist who wrote this book, late 70s, early 80s, she went to study the Palestinian refugee crisis, and the problem... And she came out with a very different perspective than when she went in. And that book should be on everybody's shelves if you want to understand the whole crisis in a modern context. Tuesday of this last week was Jerusalem Day. Tuesday, June 4th. Celebrated in Israel. 46th anniversary of the recapture of Jerusalem in the Six-Day War. For the first time in 1897 years, in that six-day war, 1967, the Jews recaptured Jerusalem. And there's an article, I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but you need to hear about this, because there was a a special day, Jerusalem Day was celebrated actually on Capitol Hill. There were several representatives of our government who were there. And uh, a man by the name of Ken Blackwell former ambassador to the UN Human Rights Commission, outlined three approaches to the Jerusalem problem. And these are the three approaches that people consider today. Approach number one is partition. Let's divide it. We'll just divide Jerusalem. We'll give Jews control of one one half and the Arab Palestinians control of the other half. Partition. The second possibility that some call for, the Pope among many others, internationalization. We make Jerusalem an international city overseen by the very competent United Nations (laughs) and under the United Nations supervision, the international city, internationalization. Third thing, affirmation. Let's affirm the Jewish right to a united Jerusalem under a unified Israel, currently... Tel Aviv is considered Israel's capital by the United States, though the Jewish people have asked for 65 years, would you please consider Jerusalem because that's our capital city. Well, this Ken Blackwell went on to say, America's history and heritage is inextricably connected to Israel and the Jewish people. We share common values and face common threats. Israel is our greatest and most trusted ally. We will always stand with Israel. And he concluded with this assessment. He said, Partition is the Solomon approach. That's well said. Where King Solomon proposed dividing a baby between two women claiming to be his mother. Solomon did this to gauge by the women's reaction which one was the child's actual mother. It's an appealing solution for those who care more about clearing the court docket than focusing on the welfare of the child. The Palestinians would say divide. The Jewish people would say unify it. It cannot be divided. Interesting. Internationalizing Jerusalem has only superficial appeal. Instead of cutting the baby in two, it's like putting it into foster care. <laughs> what concerns me about that approach is I have no evidence that the UN understands the first thing about child care. <laughs> so that only leaves the option of affirming a united Jerusalem under the undisputed sovereignty of one nation. That nation is Israel. And it's the natural parent who you know is going to love and care for the child. Interesting article, uh, just written this last week on Jerusalem Day. Rick, there's a lot of politics and stuff and I came here for a Bible study. I know you did. it's part of the deal. I want you to think about this and, and here's the real issue and the struggle that I've had. If this city is in all truth, the city of truth, if Jerusalem is His habitation, If it is the city of the great king and the throne of the Lord, why does God not only allow the desolations, but the ongoing controversy? Lord, it's your city. Why all the fuss? Why all the mess? You claim it as your own. Why not just elevate it as such and let's be done with all of this? And that brings me back to Ezekiel five. Watch this bizarre example of the type of thing God required of Ezekiel. You're going to see many of these very, very uh, physical prophecies where Ezekiel acts out a prophecy. Verse one: As for you, son of man, take a sharp sword, take it and use it as a barber's razor on your head and beard, and then take scales for weighing and divide the hair. I want you to, I want you to get a shave and a haircut. <laughs> and I want you to do it with a sword. Very sharp sword. The sword, obviously, the picture of war. And I want you to cut it all off. So Ezekiel will be bald and completely shaven. And then I want you to do something with this hair in front of everybody. <laughs> I want you to weigh it out. He's going to weigh his hair into thirds. Verse 2, he says, One third you shall burn in the fire at the center of the city, when the days of the siege are completed. And then you shall take one-third, and strike it with the sword all around the city, and one-third you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheathe the sword behind them. Now, wait a minute. Ezekiel's by the river Kabar in Babylon. And God's talking about Jerusalem here. So is He supposed to now make a quick jaunt back to Jerusalem and do this here? What's the deal here? In chapter 4, and we'll go over this on Wednesday night, God had made Ezekiel construct a miniature model of Jerusalem. He had little Jerusalem there in front of him little picture of Jerusalem, it says Jerusalem on it, Yerushalayim. And so he's supposed to take this and take these divided amounts of hair and do exactly as said. Take one third of it and burn it. That represents those in Jerusalem who will die by the fire. Strike one third of it outside the city with that sword. Just strike that, that hair all around the outside of the city. Well, that represents those who are fleeing the city and will die. Now remember, Ezekiel is receiving this before the fall of Jerusalem. He's already in exile in Babylon. But this is before Jerusalem back home has completely fallen to the Babylonians. So this is a prophecy about what's coming, about what's going to happen. Burn a third, strike a third with the sword, and then take the other third and just scatter it to the wind. And the scattering of your hair, Ezekiel, is a picture of the scattering of my people away from Jerusalem, those who will flee to the very ends of the earth. But he doesn't stop there. Then he says in verse 3, Oh, take also a few in number from them and bind them in the edges of your robe. Why? Those represent the exiles. Those whom Ezekiel himself was among. So all the exiles now in Babylon are represented by these few hairs that are now down in Ezekiel's robe, but he doesn't stop there. He says in verse 4, take again some of them and throw them into the fire and burn them in the fire. From it a fire will spread to all the house of Israel. Even among the exiles, there would be those who burn up in their rebellion. And that's the prophecy. And it's a hairy one. (laughs) But to understand this prophecy, here's the deal. This is the context of the verse with which we began. Verse 5, thus says the Lord, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. This is about Jerusalem at the center, but not just geographically. And, And here's the whole point. And here's where I'm going with all of this. This is not just about Jerusalem politically, Jerusalem internationally, Jerusalem geographically. This is about Jerusalem spiritually at the center. I've asked the question, God, why did you pick Jerusalem? Why did you choose this city? Why not Oak Harbor? You know? Why not Anacortes? Why not some other city? Why not New York? Or some other place on planet earth. Why not Babylon? Center of, you know? Or Nineveh. One of the great cities of the of, of the ancient world. Why did you pick Jerusalem? Because spiritually, listen, spiritually, Jerusalem is at the center. Did you get that? I know he's opening the door and it's fascinating. <laughs> Jerusalem is spiritually at the center. What are you talking about, Rick? Note this, three things. Jot them down quickly. The judgment of Jerusalem. Verse 6, the Lord goes on and He says, But she has rebelled against My ordinances more wickedly than the nations, and against My statutes more than the lands which surround her. For they have rejected my ordinances and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have more turmoil than the nations which surround you and have not walked in my statutes, nor observed my ordinances, nor observed the ordinances of the nations which surround you, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you and I will execute judgments among you in the sight of the nations, a tavek among you. I'm going to do this among you. I'm going to do this in the center of the nations. Do you get what's going on here? Judgment in the center. God isn't off judging some distant, far off place that's out of sight and out of mind. God says, No, no, I'm going to judge Jerusalem in the middle of all the nations. Why, Lord? That all the nations will be aware of my judgment, will see it taking place, will get this picture. Part of God's choice of Jerusalem, God loves Jerusalem. He desired it. He put His name there. He chose it. And Jerusalem then became the city of judgment. Because God would have the whole world understand this message. See clearly where His heart is, what's going on. He didn't choose this as a nondescript backwater city. Oh, it became that. But don't get your history confused. Jerusalem as a messed up, empty Place a desolation was not that way. It became that way after the second fall in A.D. 70. And then it was that way for over 1,800 years, exactly as he warned, a desolation. There was a telling saying back in the Zionist movement of the late 1800s, saying that they used often in those early days, they said, a land without a people for a people without a land. And it described exactly what the case was. Nobody wanted Palestine. Nobody cared about Jerusalem. Except for a few Christians here and there. But even those who went back to see it were amazed at how just desolate and depressed it was. That there was nobody there. There was nothing there. It was just this vast empty wasteland. That's what Jerusalem was. That's what Israel was. Just an empty desolation. Nobody wanted it. Wealthy Arab landowners sold it off by the droves as the Jews in the late 1800s, early 1900s were coming in and saying, hey, could we buy some of that? (laughs) Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Prime real estate, however. (laughs) And these wealthy Arab landowners rightly laughed all the way to the bank. Prime real estate in America in the late 1800s was between 125 to $150 an acre. Now that might not seem much today, but back then that was a lot of money. An acreage in Israel, in Palestine, was sold to Jews for over $1,000 an acre. And the Jews would pay it. And it was boggy, wasteland, malaria, mosquito infested. It was an absolute mess. And so as the Jews came in and said, we'd like to buy that, the Arabs said, sure, 1000 bucks an acre. And the Jews went, alright. And they bought the land. And they bought up piece after piece. Ezekiel 6.14 says, throughout all their habitations, I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land more desolate and waste than the wilderness toward Diblah. And they will know that I am the Lord. You see, Jerusalem among the nations. God said, my city, ah, my city, my beautiful city is going to be a wasteland because of the rebellion that takes place there. The judgment of Jerusalem is not geographical. It is spiritual. And why there? Because it was the causeway of the ancient world. You think about it, it really was geographically in the center. The Hittites, the Syrians, the the, the Assyrians, the Babylonians to the north, the Egyptians and the Ethiopians to the south, the Ishmaelites... Ammon, Edom, Moab to the east, the Philistines and the people of the distant islands to the west, Jerusalem at the center. God chose it. You ever wonder why God gave His people that land? Why did God say to Abraham, leave Ur of the Chaldees and go up into the land that I'm going to show you? And then when he left the land, or when Jacob did, and then 400 years later, all of Israel moved back to the promised land. Why that land, God? Why that city, Lord? Because this is Jerusalem at the center of all the nations. And I'm going to do something here that I don't want anybody to miss. I want all the nations to see what I'm going to do. And by the way, the judgment of Jerusalem was so brutal because these people knew better, should have known better, and chose to rebel anyway. You know, Russ was sharing at Communion about the blood spilled. And I thought to myself, the thing to me that makes the spilling of Jesus' blood at Calvary so much worse than someone simply dying for a friend is that Jesus died for a people in rebellion. That He spilled His blood for people laughing at Him and jeering at Him and spitting at Him and beating Him. He spilled His blood for a people, us, who still do so every time we sin today. Who still rebel. Who still laugh off church and Jesus and the whole thing. And it makes it more intense. And God says this about Jerusalem. He says, it's worse for you because you knew. I told you. I gave you everything you needed to know. And you still chose to rebel. And so for the entire world, Jerusalem at the center of nations became the message. What was the message? Simple. If God does not deal with sin, sin will deal with man. If I don't deal with sin, it is going to deal with you. And and you might say, okay, Rick, we know that. And I ask the question, then why do we keep on sinning? We know it. Why do we keep inviting it into our homes? We understand it. We get that sin is devastating, that sin kills, and yet we still make decisions to sin. We still choose. I'm not even talking about those things that you do when you realize oh, I'm in the middle of doing something I really shouldn't be doing. I'm talking about when we look at something and we make a choice to do it. And we do. Christians do. do. I don't need to go into all the statistics. We've seen those about how many Christians are no different than the rest of the world. If God does not deal with sin, sin will deal with man. Paul wrote in Romans 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And I have to confess to you all, I fell off the wagon. The Donut Master makes the best donuts. They are so good. Josiah was down visiting. Hannah was home. Corey was home. The whole family was around. And, and, and I, I, I just said, you know, it's like 8 o'clock at night. And I said, would you guys be willing to run down to Oak Harbor? I'm buying. And they went down and they bought some donuts. Got a big, I love the big pink box. I just look at a big pink box of donuts and I start to shake. <laughs> And so they go down there to get the donuts. And I told Hannah, you know, all I want, I just want the two plain cake chocolate frosted donuts. That and a ice cold milk. (laughs) That is perfect for me. It's going to kill me. Rick, I thought you were on this diet. Forget that. So I set them down. (laughs) They go down. They buy the donuts. They come back home. And everybody gets their donuts. And I'm like, I look in there. And there's two chocolate donuts on devil's food cake. Oh. No. Well, that's not what I ordered. And it wasn't Hannah's fault. That's what they put in the box. She just said chocolate donuts, and they went, oh, I'm like, no, I don't know if you like devil's food with chocolate on it, but you got a problem. That's too much chocolate. You just need the plain cake with the chocolate frosting, and you're perfect. It's, it's heaven on earth. It is the best. And so, of course, since I didn't get my donuts that night, the next night, we needed to send a team back down. <laughs> To get some more donuts. And they only had one, but they had one. I called ahead. <laughs> and I got one of the pink ones. Those are okay, you know, as a, as a kind of second there. It was so good. <laughs> what are you talking about, Rick? <laughs> Thank you, Joe. <laughs> Here's the issue. You know what slays me more than anything else? Though we can joke about the donuts, we do that with sin. We know sin deals with us. I know the donuts are just empty calories. I know they're bad for me. I know there's nothing good in them except the taste. I know that. So why do you keep going down to the donut master, Rick? Because he's the donut master! He knows what he's doing. I mean, with a name like that, he has to be, right? And so I get drawn... And sin is that way, and we keep going back to it. I actually heard a friend of mine last week said this. I couldn't believe it. It said, I know it's probably sin, but... And went on to explain why he was going to do this anyway. I got it as a text, and I went... I just put my phone down. I said, I can't even believe I'm reading this. I know it's bad for me. I know it's sin. So... And Jerusalem at the center of nations did that. We know we're rebelling. We're going to find out coming up here very quickly that there were idols in the temple. And I'm not talking on display in the holy place. I'm talking about in the secret chambers around that priests and Jewish leaders were going into the secret chambers to offer to their idols right on the site of God's temple. Right up in God's face. Psalm 90 verse 7 says, We've been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You've placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Our secret sins, right here. That'd be like sneaking into the barn on a Saturday night for a drunken brawl. And then showing up, cleaned up, on Sunday morning, as if nothing happened. The judgment of Jerusalem. In another vision, Jerusalem shows us the Lord actually having Ezekiel look into the inner chambers of the temple courts. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 11. We'll probably talk about this next Sunday. Then he said to me, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark? Each man in the room of his carved images? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He's out of here anyway. No big deal. Let's do what we want to do. Have they not heard? God's clear warning through all of the prophets and even through their own Torah law? Have they not heard about the warning of sin before? Of course they had. They just thought they could hide it. They just thought they could sweep it under the rug from the presence of God right under the Lord's nose. But gang, Jerusalem reminds us, points toward this truth, that God gets right down among the nations. And you know what? He does that in your life. He gets right down into the middle of things. God is not tangential to your life. God is not off in a corner somewhere. He doesn't stay in the barn when you leave. He is in the center of your life. He is in the middle of what is going on. The middle of your choices. The middle of your decisions. Whether you realize it or not, He's right there. Because He wants to be part of all that's happening in your life. In my life. Jerusalem shows us this. And reminds us that He must judge sin or sin will judge us. But there's one more spiritual issue that we've got to remember. And that is that God is not finished with Jerusalem. He's not done. He's got a glorious future. Jesus was there coming into Jerusalem. Luke makes it clear. He, He pauses... And he begins to weep. And he says in Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. You are unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus goes on and says, I say to you from now on, you will not see me until... And that's the glorious word. Until... Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What does that mean, Jesus? It means you're going to say it. It means the time is coming when the people will call out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I will come in the name of the Lord back to Jerusalem to establish my kingdom right here. It is the city of truth. It is his habitation. The city of the great king. The throne of the the Lord. And it will be more so in the future than in any days or seasons past. The judgment of Jerusalem is true. His presence in Jerusalem is felt, but the redemption of Jerusalem is what excites me. Jerusalem. He says... I have set her at the center of nations with lands around her and right there among all the nations for all the nations to see the most astounding national event of this generation took place right before our eyes. You Bible students know what I'm talking about. Let me just read it to you. Isaiah 66 verse 7 Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. That would be Yeshua, Jesus. Jesus. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in a day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? Now understand, before Israel travailed, she brought forth a son. Before the horror, horror of AD 70, Jesus was born. And in comparison to that, now God leaps forward through the prophet and says, who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, or that is after Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Zion travailed in the Holocaust. Unlike any travailing in her history. But from that desolation she brought forth, sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord, or shall I who gives delivery shut the womb? And I am among those who believe the prophecy is of May 14, 1948 and the founding of modern Israel. But listen to what he says following. Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her. All you who love her, be exceedingly glad with her. All you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breast; that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river. Shalom for Sharu Shulaim. Shalom for the city of peace. And the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you will be nursed. And you will be carried on the hip. And bounced on the knees as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. And you will see, and your heart will be glad, and your bones will flourish like the new grass. And the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but he will be indignant toward his enemies in the center of the nations. Because what God does, he doesn't do in hiding, he does it out in the open. Because the message of the Father is for everybody. And the passion of the Lord is for all people. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And where does God present this message? Right in the middle. Right in the center. Where does God desire to be in your life? Right in the middle. Back in the center. Calling you to Him. He set Jerusalem at the center of the nations that the world might know that He is the Lord. We have a couple of choices in this world. We can revel in our rebellion like Jerusalem of old or we can rejoice in our redemption like Jerusalem future. There is redemption among us. And Christians, my, my message to you, the message I have felt on my heart all this week is let's live redeemed. Let's shun sin and welcome the presence of the Lord at the heart of our lives. Let's not play the games that humanity has played since its inception. Let's love Jesus. Let's elevate Jesus. Let's put Jesus first in all things and find the joy of our redemption in that. And if you are not a believer in Jesus... There is redemption here for you this morning. Right now, Titus 2.14 says, In the name of Jesus we have our redemption, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Christians, let's be zealous for good deeds. And if you're not a Christian, I pray you'll receive redemption today. Let's stand up together. Father it is redemption that we all need and it is redemption that brings the greatest joy in our lives the freedom from sin the sin that will judge us the sin Father that that takes us down in this world and we know you must judge sin and we pray you would judge it in us now as opposed to later that you bring it to surface bring it to light so that you can purify us by the blood of Jesus and redeem us as a people for your own possession And I pray, Jesus, we would be a people zealous for good works. And I pray for all those who hear the message of Jerusalem at the center this morning. They would hear your call of redemption. Not from a distant place, but from right here in the middle of us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would respond in any way, please come forward or go to the back. Let's sing.